Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Inside Out Security Show. I'm Cindy Ng, a writer for Veronis' Inside Out Security blog. And as always, I'm joined by security experts Mike Buckby and Killian Ingler. Hey, Mike. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Killian. Hey, Cindy. So this week I'm calling our show Hashtag Tech Fails. Uh, but in preparing for this show and thinking deeply about our fails, um, I just want to echo what Killian has been voicing these past couple of episodes, uh, that when our technology fails, like for instance, if my Skype, biz, Skype for Business isn't working, then I, my first thought is, oh, it's a tech fail. Like, I, I can't believe it's not working. But we're the ones creating the technology. So for me, it, it feels, at the end of the day, a human fail. Um, so let's discuss this and, and debate it for a bit. Um, and so to set the context, uh, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review and eventually turned um, into a LinkedIn post too. And it's titled, A New Way for Entrepreneurs to Think About IT. And it said that IT is primarily known as a necessary evil, IT support, or IT as a product. And so with many different types of technologies at our fingertips, we can really do a blend of both. And so for instance, APIs have really changed how uh, firms interact and share information with each other. And we really take this for granted uh, these days because back then, you'd have to get permission from legal to sign contracts before experimenting with partnerships. And so now you can easily partner up with another service uh, with an API or use OAuth. And it's really increased our productivity, uh, but it can also have some potential problems if we're not careful. So for instance, um, if you downloaded Pokemon Go earlier this week, uh, you might have been given um, Google full access. So that meant that um, the Pokemon people could read all your emails and send out emails for you. Um, and But since then, they fixed it. Um, right? I think Killian, you, they fixed it pretty quick. Yeah, in about, I think, 24 hours, more or less, they had a patch out that had addressed it already. Um, so I think, as opposed to a technology fail, that might be a technology win for a company really taking uh, these concerns seriously and addressing it um, as soon as it's kind of brought up. But before we get into that, I just want to know, like, what is, what, what's your guys' level? Like, how you been doing on Pokemon Go? Have you been getting out there, getting your Pokemon? Well, I've been, I actually downloaded it at the office, and I had, I was, I could have, like, thrown something at somebody, <laughs> but I didn't. I just, I'm like, well, I'm just doing this for work, so better not start running after people and throwing stuff at them. You couldn't convince the rest of the office that playing Pokemon Go was part of your job for... Actually, um, we had a mobile photography class earlier this week, and um, Michelle, our HR person, was walking around telling people that Pokemon's going to be there. <laughs> so <laughs> she was doing that for me. <laughs> nice. How about you, Killian? Have you have you tried it? So? No, I haven't. I haven't downloaded it. That would require going outside and interacting with things, maybe. <laughs> The first couple ones show up like right around you because they, they and I think this is this is kind of where I was going with this, which is that a lot of this, you know, I and in terms of tech fails is really about managing complexity 
and like in terms of IT trying to manage these external services, it's about managing complexity on an organizational level instead of a personal one. Because when you think about what is involved for this like stupid game of Pokemon Go, you know, you're talking about interacting with, you know, geosynchronous orbital satellites for GPS, the internet to get all these apps, these multiple different services. And, you know, and to pull all that together requires this huge thing. And, you know, the security issue came about because um, Google was asking for OAuth access, and that's just when, you know, you use Google to log into it. You log in with your account, and it has these things. And it's so complex because even though it doesn't look like it, it actually uses uh, Google Maps data underneath. And so, like, a trick you can do is, like, if you have Google Maps installed on your iPhone, you can enable, like, offline map access. And in order to achieve the app-to-app -app communication on your sandbox apps on the iPhone, it needs all these extra permissions, and it's just insane trying to make that work. And so it's so easy when you're building something to just, like, just give me all the permissions, and we'll slowly back it down until where it's supposed to be. But do you think this is kind of like um, just, okay, we're going to use um, external service and then just not really look at the settings because we're so focused on making Pokemon Go just a wonderful experience? Well, you know, that's that's the consumer side. On the, uh, you know, the level we work at, you know, if you look, try to look at something like, um, you know, Amazon Web Services, which this article mentions, as, you know, it is fantastically complex. I mean, it's something like 60 different individual services that do individual things and also, like, overlap with other ones where, like, oh, there's, like, six different ways to send an email with AWS. There's, you know, 20 different ways to put a message in a queue to be picked up by something else. And just trying to wrap your head around, like, what actually is it doing is, is just insane. Um, and it's it's possible to do this stuff. And it, I think it's just a really hard equation of do we bring this in house and have a dedicated person for it? Is that more or less of a threat than having this outside? What is, you know, like something, something I see a lot of is, um, you know, coming more from the app side of things is people swearing up and down that like, oh, I'm going to get a virtual private server somewhere for 10 bucks a month, put my own version of Ubuntu on it and keep it up to date. And it's really hard to imagine that that is as secure as um, having a dedicated security team at AWS or Heroku or one of the other, you know, Azure platforms as a service. And, you know, it's that same scenario sort of at the organizational level, that either it's a tremendous amount of effort to maintain and secure all those things yourself or, you know, you're essentially paying for that in, you know, your service contract. I think those are all really good questions to ask. Um, and I it, it requires a huge team. Um I kind of want to transition into another fail um, that's different about different than asking good questions and and figuring out kind of the architecture. The next one, next fail, um, is a fail on many different levels. Um, it, it'd be interesting for us to discuss. So back in April, um, it was 
pub it, there's an article published and shared over 65,000 times when a small hosting company with a little over uh, 1,500 users um, said that delete he deleted uh, their customers hosted data with a single command. And then later we found out that he was just trying to market his new uh, Linux service for his company and then people were outraged he didn't do a better job backing up. They were outraged that he lied um, to server vault, uh, vault like a community that really helps um, one another figure stuff out because um, it's security and and backing up and just technology, it's, it's complicated. Um, I was a little skeptical reading the article with the headline that said, one person accidentally deletes his entire company with one line of bad code. Um, and if you're responsible for hosting data, you should have multiple backups. And uh, one of my favorite comments is like, how do you even accidentally type um, that, you accidentally, that you accidentally deleted stuff? Like, what are your thoughts? Uh, or reaction to this article. Dylan, you want to go? <laughs> I, I have my own. I have my own thoughts. So, sure. Um, I, I mean, first off, that's a terrible job of advertising. Um, I, I I don't know what he's advertising for. Like, host with us, and I might break your stuff. Um, I mean, I think the point he was probably going for is that it's easy to make mistakes. So, you know, get a dedicated person to, that's that knows better, but I don't think that really came across. Um, for the actual command itself, a lot of people are in such a hurry to automate and make things easier that it is easy to make mistakes, especially as Mike mentioned earlier with these vastly complicated systems uh, with dozens of ways to do the same thing. Uh, the more the complex the system gets, the easier it is to make a mistake. Maybe it could be that disastrous. Uh, but a lot of things really have to go wrong uh, and, you know, kind of poor decisions made throughout the chain, but it's conceivable that someone could have done that. Yeah, so the, specifically to the question that's asked on server fault, which is like a question and answer site for these issues, um, you know, there's a lot of Unix utilities that can either take uh, a single or like multiple different directories as uh, arguments. So you say like, hey, you know, copy these two things or copy this one thing. And so uh, in this, the person, they put a space. So they have like slash path folder space slash. And so that second, that last slash got interpreted as the root of the volume they were on. And so, hey, we just destroyed everything. And everything includes like all your keys and stuff. You know, something we talk a lot about in here is layered security, but you need like layered backups and recovery as well. And that was really the answer to this. It was that they were on a virtual private server. Um, and so in addition to just backing up like the local data, their database, the files on it, that um, there's actually, you know, it takes system images of your entire uh, VPS and keeps it somewhere else. I am incredibly paranoid with backups, especially backups of systems like this. And so I always try to like even just get it out of the system that if, you know, if it's on, in this case, it was Hetzner, which is a European hosting system, that you get that out and onto S3 or you get it out and onto, you know, Rackspace Cloud or something else, um, just to try to to make that a better scenario. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point is, uh, yeah, having multiple different kind of, you can't have one single point of failure in a system like this. Otherwise, you could be very vulnerable. Even for myself, 
when I, for example, back up pictures off of my camera, I have it go to my laptop, I have it go to a, a network share, and then I have a separate um, hard drive that I plug in just for that and then unplug it and put it away afterwards. So I have three different places for it. Not that they're that valuable like a you know hosting system, but silly things happen sometimes. You yeah. know, if I lose power or you know, power surge, and I lose two of my systems for some reason, I still have that hard drive that's sitting in a in a drawer. Yeah, I have a lot of discussions with people where they have backups in this very elaborate system. They're like, all right, I have my local network attached storage here, then I got this another server, and then I rotate them and do all this stuff. And that's awesome until like their house catches on fire and they lose <laughs> everything. And and that's the stuff you have to think about is like, you know, these things come in in weird ways, um, especially as everything is so interconnected and everything is so dependent upon each other that you can just have these like weird cascading levels of failure. And from very like crazy sources uh, of stuff, like DNS goes out, like a DNS server gets a DDoS attack. And then that actually ends up taking down like a third of the internet just because everything is so connected. <laughs> so, yeah. So our next fail, I want to know if you guys think that our inability to vote online is a human fail or a tech fail. What do you guys think? Uh, or any opinion, really. <laughs> well, I, I think it's not... It's all in the execution, like all of this stuff, that if there was, you know, a verifiable, you know, cryptographically secure way of knowing that, you know, you could vote and, like, that would be a very positive thing, um, potentially. Um, but, you know, it's hard to... It's a really interesting mix of uh, software and technological concerns and, like, people and sociological and political concerns. Um, so, like, what I just said about having, like, almost like a voting receipt that says, like, great, you used your, you know... Your, your key to sign, and you have definitely voted for this person and done this thing. Like, one of the reasons that's never been done, even, like, on um, most paper stuff, um, is that that was a huge um, source of fraud that, you know, in, like, the olden days when they had voting receipts, like, you would go and, like, turn them into your councilman, and they would be like, great, here's your five bucks for voting for me <laughs> for <laughs> in this election. Um, so that's just something that's not done. That's not a technical issue. Like, it's certainly possible to do those things, but it leads to all these other unforeseen, um, unforeheard, like the cobra effect, the cobra effect kind of things, these horrible unintended consequences. So. Yeah, I, so I think um, this article on why we still can't vote online was just very thoughtfully written. Um, it talked about how it can potentially destabilize a country's government and leadership if they don't get voting online right. Um, and it was really just like, wow, I, I can't believe a researcher at uh, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab said, we do not know how to build an internet voting system that has all the security and privacy and transparency and verifiable properties that a national security application like voting has to have. Um, and they're worried about malware, they're worried about um, ransomware, they're, they're worried about um, being able to um, go in and track, um, do like a complete security audit. And, and, and 
they said something interesting too about how like in the fin finance system like sure you have sensitive data and you can go back and track um, where the money went more or less if if you have the systems in place um, but but you you might not necessarily be able to do that with voting and someone can say oh I voted for so-and-so and then change it to somebody else and they can't go back and verify that there are so many elements that you need to consider it's not just Pokemon or <laughs> you're not just you're not um, trying to create a wonderful gaming experience or you're not trying to back things up you're there are a multitude of things you need to take into consider so the one big thing and kind of I think the heart of it was the need for anonymity in the voting process uh, that's kind of the way it was set up to avoid you know, coercion and some other problems with it um, is you need to be anonymous when you cast that vote and by putting it online the real downside is like if you think about um, online banking it's important to know and verify that you are who you say you are and have a transaction of that entire process so you can ensure it's kind of both parties know that the money transfer from X to Y or so on and so forth um, and you have those the track of the steps but when you try and introduce uh, anonymity into that equation it completely falls apart because if you have that tracking data um, going back to somebody um, casting a vote then they could be a, you know, a target of coercion or something like that um, you know or if the opposition party finds out they could go after them for not voting for whoever yeah, they did that with Nelson Mandela. In yep. Article. Yeah. And then the other thing too is, as a as a person casting a vote, if you think about it, um, you're kind of trusting the system. It's completely black box to you at that point. So when you click the button, say I vote for a candidate, you know X Y Z, you have no idea because there's again you want to be anonymous. You don't have that verification of the system that says, hey, you know my vote wasn't changed to candidate you know A B C in the process. You kind of have to go along with it. Even if you look back at some of the um, the physical uh, problems with uh, uh, the George Bush, uh, the George W. Bush election with the ballots not lining up right with the little punches um, and it was punching for, uh, I forget what the other candidate's name was, um, but... Al Gore? No, no, no. It was, like, it was like Pat Buchanan or somebody, whoever the third party candidate was. Um, but they were saying, no, no, I voted for you know Al Gore, or whoever, but it you know registered as somebody else. Uh, they had to go back and manually look at that, and look at the physical paper to see that, um, to to validate that. Uh, but if you think in a digital system, if you click the button, you have no way to to audit that really, because if the system says no, you voted for this guy, you don't you have no proof, you have no kind of additional evidence to back that up, and that's the big problem. They actually showed this in um, The Good Wife, the TV show that is no longer around, um, or they just ended, but um, they voted, uh, the voters would go in and they would vote for someone, but then it would also give the other person five additional more votes. <laughs> um, but, it, and I think another thing to, they didn't mention it, but um, I think politicians or just that kind of industry are kind of a, a tad bit slower in the technology side because Barack Obama's campaign really set the tone for um, using technology and using social media to kind of engage the voters and um, and it really it 
that by then, like every it's it's kind of like he really changed how now politicians are are marketing and connecting with people. Um, and I don't know. I do you feel like they're kind of behind, or I mean, or or maybe that's just me. My my personal opinion is we have laws that don't make sense with where technology is at because they are slow. Um, you know, we're still running on laws, you know, and, and prosecuting cases um, with laws that were made in, you know, the 80s and early 90s, where technology, and even older in some cases, where technology was vastly different than what we have today. Uh, this might be off topic, but they there was just, I think, uh, a ruling that, I forget which, um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, could theoretically mean that if you share your Netflix password, it's a you know federal crime. Now, that's open to interpretation, but that was a, a story I'd seen the other day. So, we have all this technology, and it's evolving you know much much faster than uh, the people making the regulations can kind of keep up with it. I just want to see a pokey stop at every voting uh, registration. <laughs> Mike has Pokemon on his mind. It's great. It's good fun. Um, so, what was I gonna? I'm, I'm now. I have Pokemon. I actually <laughs> visualized like us at a poke, like playing Pokemon at a voting um, station. That would be interesting. It's too hot and humid in New York um, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> vote to vote or to play Pokemon. So. Oh. Mm -hmm. Well, I almost want to say both because it's so, so hot. <laughs> well, to to the candidates out there, the first one to get on top of this, um, you know, making a pokey stop at the voting booths in November might seize the election with the youth vote. A Pokemon in every pot, and uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, let's let's also kind of think about. Um, potential fails though um, there like we've seen target um, Sony like the data breaches um, and and so when sales happen um, it costs them their jobs um, it do you think one person should be blamed for all of it, or, or can we also kind of say, oh, we don't have the technology right yet? Well, you know, it's interesting. So what we're talking about is, you know, that there have been a lot of very large data breaches, and what seems to happen is, like, it happens, and then depending upon how much press it gets, the CEO has to resign or doesn't, or in the case of, like, the OPM, the director. Um, and... With the parallel that I like to think of is like Sarbanes-Oxley, which, you know, has had a lot of other consequences. But the big one was that uh, the chief executive has to sign off on the financials of the company. And before, it was always, there were a lot of scandals where it was like, I'm just running the company. My CFO and the accounting group, they were doing their own thing with the funds. I wasn't aware that this, you know... That we said this like 10,000 pounds of coconuts we had on the dock that were rotten were actually good. And, you know, we counted those in an asset. You know, like all of those kind of shenanigans. And just that thought that, like, okay, this, the finances and the statements that are put out, um, that is an executive level 
sign-off. That there's a responsibility at that level to ensure that those are correct. And what we're seeing is sort of that happening on the on the IT security side. That maintaining the integrity of your customers' data, of you know the people you're responsible for, that is something that the executive suite needs to say is a priority and to ensure that in any way they can and that if they aren't doing that, that's their job, that that's they failed at their job. Now, looking through these kind of stories, you typically find that like the person in charge is not a network security person because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of like people that get their CISSP and then say like, I'm qualified to be CEO. Like it just, that's just not how the normal job progression works. Um, but um, they need to have people in place and they need to make sure that, you know, the right things are happening despite not having the personal expertise um, to, to implement those, but that they make it a priority and they give budget and they're able to balance it against the other needs of the company. So um, in order to come back from a security or technology fail, um, there is an article about uh, there's new technology that, that predicts your next security fail, and they are essentially talking about predictive analytics. And um, I really like a quote that they uh, that they that they wrote that it's only as good as the forethought you put into it and the questions that you ask of it. And um, I guess it really just you there's only there's if you're if you don't think about it if you don't have like a whole team to to work on this huge security and technology problem it's um, because there's only so much you can in terms of big data um, machine learning predictive analytics there's a lot of stuff like um, that a lot of elements um, that you're unable to kind of account for and so if you don't consider all the different elements um, in security, you can't build that into the technology that we build. Um, what, are, what are some other things you think that can help companies prevent or come back from um, a tech fail or a security fail or a human fail? <laughs> I- I thought that the only thing I could get in my mind there was, you know, asking the right questions. Uh, for me, is is from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, if you ask it, you know, what's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, it's going to give you an answer. But, you know, what's what's the answer? You know, what's the question you're really trying to get out of it? Um, I don't know. That's all I could could think of in my head because I think that's one thing people get stuck in a lot of times is um, is asking the wrong questions uh, that they need from their data. I'm sorry, Mike, that you, I cut you off there. You were going to say something. Oh, I was, you know, I, I, I'm in agreement with you, Killian, because I think too often the question that's posed is, like, are we secure? Like, and that's, there's no crisp answer to that. It's never going to be, yes, we're 100% good, because um, the only way to do that is not to have any data and not to have any interactions with customers. And that's the case, you don't have a business. So you have to have something. Like, you still have to have people interacting. And the moment you have two people interacting, you're vulnerable at some level. They can be tricked, they could, you know, do anything. And then you have networks, and the networks are talking. So it's much more about what is the level of risk that you find acceptable, what steps can you take towards mitigating, you know, known dangers, how much effort and time and money 
can you put behind those efforts um, than it is, you know, there's, there's no quick fix. And just to re something we talk about a lot on this is um, that, you know, data is in a lot of ways like a toxic asset, that it's something that, you know, you need to think about like, oh, we have all this extra data. Well, let's try to get rid of some of it just so we don't mm -hmm. have it around to cause us a problem, just so we have a, you know, we don't have it around to be leaked in some way. Um, and um, there's lots of different ways to do that and, um, you know, lots of benefits to doing so. So we're now in the parting gift segment of our show where we share things we're working on or something we found online that um, we think our viewers and listeners would appreciate. Um, so I just read that Chrysler, uh, the car brand, is offering a bug bounty um, between $150 to $1,500 um, for finding bugs. Um, but you can't make it public. Um, and also, I just updated um, top InfoSec people to follow. Um, I included a whole bunch of other women um, mm -hmm. that were missed. And so um, check that out at blog.veronis.com. Who's the, who's the one person you think we should follow that we weren't before? Um, I definitely think we should be all following Runa Sandvik. She's the new InfoSec um, security uh, person. She, she writes about info security at the um, New York Times. Um, and so she's everybody. She also um, worked on tour um, and she did this really cool like rifle hack. Um, and I think she wrote and she wrote about that um, on or someone wrote about her hack in on Wired. Um, cool. Um, I was I was going to recommend uh, Qualsys's uh, SSL lab server test, um, which if you're unaware of what it is, um, you can put in your website and it will run through all of the different ways in which you have screwed up uh, setting it up properly to be <laughs> secure. Um, and it gives you a nice letter grade. Um, so a couple interesting things about this. One, it's really hard to make one of these yourself because to do so, you have to maintain a system that has all of the old bad libraries on it for connecting on like SSL 1 and 2 and 3 that are deprecated um, just so you can make the connections and say like, oh, yes, this remote system also connects with this. Um, so it's not something you want to do and it's not something you can do trivially. So it's great that this is an online service. And then two, I think it's really interesting how, you know, they essentially just made up these letter grades for like what they consider as an A, A plus B, like, you know, and, but in doing so, they were able to really improve the security of everyone because it's one thing to say like, okay, well, you know, out of 200 possible things, we comply with 197 of them. And it's a different thing to know like, okay, we got a failing grade because one of those three things we didn't do was actually really, really bad and exploitable. Um, and to be able to compare that across sites I think just has a lot of incentives to um, make everyone improve their site. Like, oh gosh, this other site is, you know, better grade than us. Like, we should definitely improve things. Um, so for those reasons, I, I think it's a really great, um, you know, part of the security ecosystem, a great tool for all of that. So. Killian, do you have a parting gift? Yeah. Um, I was reading an article the other day. It was pretty interesting. Uh, how we all come to rely on our, our phones and our digital assistants like Siri or Google Now to make our lives easier to interact with the device. And some researchers started thinking that 
hey, this is a good avenue for exploitation. They started um, uh, kind of distorting voice commands so they can embed it in other things um, to get your phone to do stuff um, on your behalf. So it's just an interesting thing to keep aware of you know, kind of where and how you're using your digital assistance because other people could start to exploit it um, by issuing voice commands to it to you know maybe direct you to a malicious site or something. So it's, it's one more thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. So I can pretend to be Killian and steal all his money. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Mike and Killian and all our listeners and viewers for joining us today. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter and see what we're up to, you can find us at Veronis, V-A-R-O-N-I-S. And if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can go to iTunes and search for the Inside Out Security Show. There's a video version of this on YouTube that you can subscribe to on the Veronis channel. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week. Bye, Mike. Bye, Killian. Bye, Cindy. Bye, Killian.